All right, so I'm moving very slowly through the book of James, uh, particularly the first chapter. It will speed up as we move along here, but tonight I'm going to talk about the uh, James 1, 9 through 11, which are it's the first of four passages that deal with, with rich and poor folks and issues of, of wealth and, and how we deal with that. And so this will really just sort of introduce that theme and some of the further uh, discussions will perhaps answer more questions. So uh, let me just uh, quickly pray. Um, Father, we thank you for your word. Pray now that you would um, uh, make clear uh, what, what you would have each person hear from this passage, um, that you would convict hearts, that you would bring application, that you would, um, and then erase anything that, uh, that I say that would be inaccurate. Um, or, or have others uh, search your word and let me know. But just thank you for, for your Holy Spirit, for, for bringing power to your word and illumination. And uh, just thank you for being here with us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So James 1, 9 through 11. Let the lowly boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Okay, so the context here is what we've gone over a number of times before, but it's, it's that James is speaking to his flock and knowing that they are, most of them are going through significant trials, has urged them to rejoice in their trials because trials are, are a spiritual workout, so to speak. Trials build perseverance. They build strength in the Lord, and they lead us to be what he calls perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So trials build our ability to, to be like Jesus and then to glorify Jesus in our actions. And then he tells us in the midst of our trials to ask for wisdom. And I think he's, he's both saying to ask for wisdom to deal with the trial, as we'll see, see in, in this passage tonight, and ask for wisdom, uh, just the, the wisdom that you gain from going through trials. So it's a wisdom for life going forward. But he says to ask in faith. So ask in faith with no doubting. And, and I think what, what I at least said that I think he means there is that is to ask with a heart attitude that says, what you tell me, I will follow. So don't keep contingency plans open, but rather ask for wisdom in saying, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All right, so in this passage tonight, um, the situation is that the, the believers of Jerusalem and surrounding area have been dispersed in the persecution of the early church and are living in, in foreign lands. They're living in, they're strangers in strange lands, so to speak. And they, they are likely, um, many of them, and we'll see in James 4 some specific things about this, but they're, they're being um, taken advantage of by rich landowners. They are um, perhaps abused in some ways, treated like, like slaves almost in some cases. And so they, they're tempted to, to grovel, 
they're tempted to come with hat in hand to the to the rich man and in shame and humiliation and ask for help and to do this in a way that reflects not humility but fear of man and the rich man on the other hand um, boasts in his high position he feels superior to the poor man and he in, in his heart uh, feels that it's really only out of sheer mercy that he would give the poor man the time of day and, and the poor the poor man might be tempted to feel that he's under some kind of curse and the rich man would be tempted to feel that he was under blessing and so the message is that the kingdom of God is not like this this is the way of the world in the kingdom in the kingdom everything is turned upside down and you remember me talking about James really being James voice sounds more like Christ than any other writer in the New Testament well here this is particularly true because Christ talked a lot about rich and poor and this flipping in the kingdom let me just read some of the things that he said so this is in Luke, the sermon that's very much like the Sermon on the Mount. Some call it the Sermon on the Plain. And Jesus starts out with some Beatitudes. He says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. Um, Jesus is fairly stark in, his, in, in, in reversing this typical assumption that, that the downtrodden are cursed and that the wealthy are blessed. Jesus, just a little bit earlier, in, he, he was visiting Nazareth, his hometown, and on the Sabbath he, was, he attended synagogue and was, was offered, I guess as a visiting rabbi, he was offered the, the scroll to read, read the scripture, and he was, he was handed the scroll of Isaiah, and he turned, he turned to this particular part and read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then he handed the scroll back to the attendant and sat down and he said, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So, so he was announcing himself as the, as the Messiah, as the anointed one, the anointed one that Isaiah prophesied. And here he talks about, interestingly, he, he said, one of the things he says is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so he's talking about the year of Jubilee, the, the, every 50-year mark where, where the, sort of the, the inequalities in land ownership are reversed, so to speak. People are, owners are given back their land. And so this, would, this particular reading would speak directly to what's going on with these, these poor believers. And then everyone's very familiar with the story of the rich young ruler who, who approaches Jesus and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And 
and Jesus says, well, follow the commandments. And he, and he said, well, which ones? And Jesus tells him, tells him a few. And he says, well, I've done that since my youth. And so Jesus, knowing that he does not know his own heart, that he, he truly believes that he's followed the commandments, then looks into his heart and sees his, his idol. He sees what he loves. And he says, well, there's one more thing. He says, I want you to sell everything you own, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Uh, and, of course, the, the, in counting the cost, the rich young ruler uh, then is sad and, and knows he, he won't do that. He, he won't give up his idol. And so he walks away. And, uh, and, and Jesus then says, you know, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and that's something we'll talk more about, about later on. But interestingly, then, um, then Peter, <laughs> sort of full of himself as always, says, says, well, hey, look, we've left our families, we've left our homes, we're following you. Like, aren't we awesome? You know, and Jesus says, look, no, not really. He says, because you're going to get far more. You're going to get far more than you've given. You can't pay for this thing. You can't do enough. Uh, and he says, and interestingly, Jesus even says, you're going to get far more in this life and then, then riches in eternity. So, so Jesus, again, again says how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, but then on questioning says but, that everything's possible with God. So we have both an encouragement to the poor and a warning to the rich. And what I would say about this, and, and I'm going to say more about it later uh, because there's lots of nuance here, but is that as we ponder God's kingdom... As we think about what what is Jesus saying here, what's he telling us, that we would think about, that we would meditate deeply on this reversed economy and then look into our own hearts. Because what I would say is this, I would bet, I would bet that most of us sort of don't have trouble accepting the basic me basic message there of things being flipped in the kingdom. But I would be shocked if all of us don't in some degree, just in our personal lives, have trouble embracing that message because it's just so utterly tempting to see riches, to see to, rather to see blessing in the external things, blessing in our bank account, blessing in, in all of those things. And again, which there there can be blessing there, rightly understood. But what I'm talking about is is like the rich young ruler to see the es the essence of a blessed life in those things. Okay, but what I, what I want to really talk more about and think about is this idea of boasting. Um, in, in James 1.9, he says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. And so what in the world does James mean by this boast, boast in? And again, we get that the last are first and the first are last, but what about this boasting? And I would say that he, so he's calling, again, he's calling the, the poor man to boast his exaltation. And I, I initially wrote down that, that he's referring to the poor man's new identity. And then I marked that out and, and wrote position, and, it's, and I'm going to explain in a minute my thoughts on this, but I think this identity concept is so grossly misused 
these days, and it's used a whole lot. Um, but so the poor man has been exalted to a new position. He's been lifted out of the pit of despair and humiliation, saved by grace, exalted by grace. And so you could you could say, well, in his identity, he's no longer a poor, pathetic, worthless, alien beggar. But what is he? What has he been exalted to? And how do you how do you articulate that? Well, I think it's I think in the in as far as for my money, it, it's expressed in Ephesians better than anywhere else. And just listen. Let me read from Ephesians two. This is verses one through eight. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we were dead. We were dead in our sins. We were following Satan. We were, we were indulging every whim, every internal passion, every desire like the rest of mankind, like everyone else. And we're by nature children of wrath. And, and then he says, but God. So he, he, he inserts God. God did something here. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised, up, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing is the gift of God. What, so what is the exaltation? What, what, has, what has he done for us? So he's taken us from that that position. Now again, this is if we're all if we're all relating to the poor man, which we which we should be. He's taken us from that that hopeless, helpless position of being dead in our sins to, and let me just read it again. And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that he might show us his immeasurable riches. So he exalted us to that place. Now, listen, listen to what he, what he says in, in chapter 1. And this is, and try to see if you can follow me here, because I want to address something in this regard that I think is a, is a great, um, is a tremendous problem in the church, if you will. And it goes back to this idea of identity. And it goes back to how we, how we might be tempted to use Ephesians 1 in this discussion. So think about what I just said and where he has exalted us to. And you, you might begin to get an idea of what it looks like to boast in your exaltation. But listen to verse 3 of Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And, and so he starts out um, he starts out identifying who he is who, who the central character is here. 
It's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's God. And I just listened to, um, I want you to hear what Lloyd-Jones says, and I, I apologize to some of you. I, I know that sometimes when I read a, a quote, eyes glaze over, but this is, I think this is especially relevant to this thought process and this discussion. This is Martin Lloyd-Jones just in his introduction to the, to the commentary on Ephesians. So he says, the Bible is God's book. It is a revelation of God, and our thinking must always start with God. Much of the trouble, now listen to this, because this was in the 50s, but he's talking just so specifically to us today. Much of the trouble in the church today is due to the fact that we are so subjective, so interested in ourselves, so egocentric. That is the peculiar era of this present century. Now hear that. The stuff that we're taught today and the stuff we're taught even about Ephesians 1 is peculiar to this century. Having forgotten God and having become so interested in ourselves, we become miserable and wretched and spend our time in shallows and miseries. The message of the Bible from beginning to end is designed to bring us back to God, to humble us before God, and to enable us to see our true relationship to Him. Now, have you, if you guys heard, I would imagine you have, of a, discuss, a discussion of Ephesians 1 that involves a pulling out of the, call it identity teaching, call it who I am in Christ, but a pulling out of the I am statements. Has anyone heard that? Is it, or perhaps even seen the little cards that are the sort of identity cards? But the idea is that someone who's struggling, someone is struggling in some way, uh, that they're like the poor man before the rich man, they're groveling in their humiliation. That you say, you need to know who you are in Christ. You need to meditate on the I am's. And so it'll go something like this. I'm a saint. I am chosen. I am holy. I am adopted. I am redeemed. I am an heir. You get the idea. I am. I am. I am, I am, as a substitution for this wonderful passage here. Now, what's the problem? It's man-centered. Because the things you're saying, I am adopted, it's absolutely true. But you're pulling, you're ripping it out of context. And who is I am? It's God. God is I am. Jesus then tells us he's God by saying I am. And when we separate ourselves out and say I am, I am, I am, completely separated from context, we destroy the meaning. And it becomes man-centered and utterly, it's, as Lloyd-Jones says, we wallow in miseries and sorrows. And so imagine a, a struggling believer coming in and we give them I am cards. If you're feeling bad, just go through these I am's. So when, when, we, when the poor man boasts in Christ, when we, boast in, in, when we boast in our exaltation, let me say, what, what are we doing? What are we boasting in? And what I would say is that we're boasting in our new family. It really, it, it really shouldn't become about I am. 
it, it should become about a boasting in our father. Look at my dad. Can you believe it? Can you believe who my dad is? He's the God of the universe. He, Deuteronomy 7, 9, the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to thousands of generations to those who love him and keep his commandments. He's glorying in his elder brother, Jesus Christ, the image of the visible God, the firstborn of all creation, yet, yet the one who humbled himself to the point of death on a cross and calls us his brothers and sisters. And he's glorying in the Holy Spirit, his constant companion, encourager, counselor, comforter, illuminator of scripture, helper, intercessor, the, the one by whom we call out, Abba, Father. In other words, the one who gives us access to our dad's lap. And then finally, he's boasting in, he's glorying in his earthly family, the church. The church that's unified in Jesus Christ, that, that is building itself up in love as each part does its work. The, the, the part that allows us to be a part of the body where we don't have to necessarily be noticed because our, our status in that sense is irrelevant. We can be a toenail and glory in our family just as much. So again, just to be clear, this, we have to pull this self-esteem teaching out of this. I, I saw a poster the other day and it was a, it was a young lady with, I would, I would estimate, a haughty look on her face and a crown, and, and she said, the, the quote was something like this, whenever, I, whenever I'm going through hard times, whenever I'm feeling bad, I just adjust my crown. What's the idea? It's the same thing I'm talking about. It, it's, 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 it's substituting self-esteem for true identity in our family, the family that we've been accepted into while we were yet sinners. Okay, so a little practical application. Um, I would say most of us have never lived in an agrarian culture. Perhaps some of us have, um, but probably most of us have not been exactly in this situation where, where there are rich landowners and, and paupers, if you will. And so in your mind, um, I was trying to think of an example that might, maybe might apply to most of us. So go in your mind back to school to middle school, high school, college, and see if you can remember a time when, when perhaps there were, there were beautiful people, there were popular people, there were maybe the, the popular athletes, cheerleaders, whatever the case may be. Maybe you were one of those. But picture them surrounded by admirers and other beautiful people. Maybe they had a Porsche or some other great car, talked about a a uh, home in Vail where they went for family ski trips. And with, with you, uh, perhaps, perhaps they weren't mean-spirited, or maybe they were, but uh, perhaps they just made you feel invisible. You, you felt like a loser in their presence. Uh, and this, this was a trial. This was a trial of one of the trials of many kinds. So stretch your imagination a little further and uh, imagine that you're a believer in this context and you're meditating on James 1. You, you've been urged by your youth leader, perhaps, who knew you were going through this. 
And so you get the part about rejoicing in trials, but it's not easy. And you ask God for wisdom, certainly. But, but of in James 1, verse 9 through 11 really lights up. Because it seems like, wow, this is, this is kind of my situation. Um, and so, so though a true believer, your mind has been formed by pop psychology. And so you've been, it's been formed by teachings on self-esteem and self-love that have replaced teachings about loving Christ through picking up your cross and following him. So in the name of identity, you begin to glory in your own status. So I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, Jesus loves me. After all, he chose me. I'm a saint. I'm a child of a king. Look at me. And then you pull out your identity cards that you just happen to have, and you, you, you go through them for the hundredth time. And so in this pumped-up, self-focused state of mind, you read verses 9 through 11 once again, and you take great pleasure in the fate of all these jerks who are making you feel so bad. He'll fade away like a once-beautiful flower, scorched by the sun, blown away by the wind. He'll end up as a washed-up loser, bragging about the good old days, longing for his days of glory. Meanwhile, I'll go to a prestigious university on an academic scholarship, and I just can't wait to come back to the high school reunion. Who's the loser now? Of course, being godly, you keep silent, even as you gloated internally. Just, I think you could even be comfortable just letting him simmer in his humiliation. So, so what's happening here? What's happening with this interpretation? Is you're certainly not walking God's wisdom, are you? You're not boasting in Him. You're, rather, you're indulging a demon-inspired, fleshly passion involving bitterness, envy, and revenge. James 3 makes clear that, that bitter jealousy and selfish ambition clearly are not the wisdom of God. Okay, so replay the scene once more and let's try to get it right this time. Okay, so you're, you're a young student facing this trial, facing this trial of feeling inadequate in the face of so many others in high school. But, but you're reframing this difficult situation as an opportunity, you're reframing this situation, opportunity for growth in Christ and thus for God's glory. And, and you're truly seeking his wisdom as you walk it out. So how might, now just think about it, how might you boast in your exaltation here? How might you truly do that? And, and I would say by rejoicing in what Christ has graciously done for you with an ever-increasing focus on him. Looking at him not curved in on yourself, not navel-gazing. In, in essence, in, now hear me because... There's a sense in which we have to examine ourselves, but, but forgetting yourself in the best sense of the term. And in that, increasingly loving him and loving others. Well, then, what, okay, so what do we do with the, the popular person, the rich person, our tormentor? Well, how about mercy? <laughs> how about in, in contemplating the great love and mercy of Christ 
that we, we give that same kind of mercy in our approach. So in, in walking in the light, you, 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 you'll see this person in a very different light. You'll see that their worldly facade is, is, is just that. And in considering the imminent collapse that James spells out so vividly, you'll feel pity rather than despising him and wishing him ill. In that, you're really, in essence, if you, if you want to call him an enemy, you're loving your enemy. In other words, you're doing exactly what Jesus talks about with the king, with, in the kingdom where everything is flipped. So you pray for him. You share the love of Jesus' opportunity presents. You bless him if, if possible. You seek to make him your friend. You overcome evil with good. And in that spirit, you're the salt and light that Jesus urges you to be. All right, so where is, where is Jesus in this passage, by the way? And I would say most, most clearly, Jesus is the poor man. He's the lowly brother. 2 Corinthians 8, 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Philippians 2, 7, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Luke 9, 58, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So Jesus is the poor man, and he... And in that, he radically identifies with all of us who, who, prior to coming to him, have to acknowledge our own neediness. And, and, and I would say he gives, he radically identifies with the despised outcast and gives him every reason to rejoice in his trials. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I, I hope this was clear. If it wasn't, I um, pray that you'd bring further thoughts, further questions. Um, pray especially that we would, um, that our own hearts would be enlightened to see how, um, how destructive self-centered integration has been to the, to the word of, to your word and to its power. Uh, and how, uh, again, um, Yes, yes, we see ourselves in Ephesians 1. Uh, and we see ourselves as, um, as, as those that you have given great mercy to, that you've lavished with grace, that you have pulled us into your family. And so we rejoice in that sense we boast in our family. But Father, I, I, pray, I pray that we would not indulge in these me-centered identity teachings. Uh, but rather we continually rejoice in you and in your glory and your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.